Hey everyone, this is Free Food for Thought, a student-run, student-focused podcast here to feed your curiosity. I'm Avi. And I'm Simon, and today we are thrilled to have Graham Lee Brewer joining us. Graham Lee Brewer is an associate editor for Indigenous Affairs at the High Country News. He also serves as a board member of the Native American Journalists Association and regularly contributes to NPR and to the New York Times. He holds a bachelor's and a master's degree in journalism from the University of Oklahoma. Graham got a start in college at KGOU, an NPR affiliate, and has since uh, had an award-winning career covering criminal justice, indigenous affairs, and Oklahoman politics. Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. Um, so our first question is kind of about your career and maybe some advice you'd give to your former self. Uh, so if you were talking to a student who wants to be the next Graham Lee Brewer, what advice would you give them? Mm, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think... I would probably advise that person um, to, you know, like learn how to frame stories based on your audience. So I think one of the things that I learned when I got to High Country News, after being at a newspaper and then a local member, local NPR member station before that, was that I was really hyper localizing everything. And I think a lot of what happens in our own communities and our own backyards it becomes so everyday or, or um, so normal that we fail to see how it is really, could be really interesting or striking to someone who doesn't live where you do. And so there's just like a multitude of stories that I would write about at the paper. And now that I'm writing for somebody who has a much broader audience than that, I'm constantly thinking about like, man, that would have been a really great national story because it was just so fascinating and unique. Um, and so I think, and, and, and I also kind of learned that I, I had never really learned the skill of how to pitch to a national magazine. And so I think um, learning from the mentors that you do have available to you about how to talk to editors and how to shape stories in a way that people outside of your community will find interesting, it's a really useful skill to have because then you don't really have to like leave your place to um, leave your stamp or, or make your mark or, or have a career on a national level, if you're good at explaining where you live and where you're from and the place you know to people who don't understand it, that's a really valuable skill, I think. And, and I think the definite, the last presidential administration, the journalism industry as a whole was kind of realizing, I think at least on the coasts and the like DC, LA, New York, those major hubs of the media, I think editors at some of those legacy publications were kind of realizing just how little they knew about little middle America um, because there was so much shock when Trump was elected. And I think if you're a reporter in a place like Oklahoma, we weren't, I, I, I wasn't as, I don't think as surprised as a lot of people were, if that makes sense. Who are some writers and journalists who have shaped your worldview and how you cover stories? You know, I was thinking about this the other day. Um, I, I always find myself going back to the reporting of Eli Saslow at the Washington Post. Um, his work is just so, he's just so good at taking these big national conversations or issues and reminding us of like how, the, I guess the humanity of those endeavors. And so um, I think, I think as journalists, like kind of, we should be asking ourselves a lot, like whether or not we're contributing to the problem because we guide so much discussion about how things um, are kind of broke down or digested on a national level. And um, I think it's really good for us to kind of be asking how we move these conversations forward. 
And I really like how his work does that because it, it makes you ask, I think, really important questions about equity. Equity in particular, as I think, is a quality that could, we could use a lot more of in our coverage of asking questions of what equity should look like. And when I say equity, I, I don't just mean like, you know, funding for different areas of the government, but, um, you know, just like how we should be treating certain problems, um, how we should be looking at the roots of those problems and how they affect people and how people react to them. Um, and so I, I, I really, <clears throat> I think he really does that in his work really well. Um, and uh, yeah, no, I just, I just, I really love all the stuff he does. So. Well, that's a, that's a, that's an amazing coincidence because he will be speaking at the ATH uh, just next week. I saw, so. I saw that. Yeah, actually, yeah. I think that's why I was thinking about it. Cause I was looking to see who else was speaking and I was like, oh my gosh, they got like one of my heroes basically. So yeah, good company to be in for sure. You mentioned earlier sort of this, this topic of, at the beginning of your career, writing stories that you felt were much more localized than you're writing now for a, a national audience. Could you maybe give us some more perspective on um, things in your background or maybe how the start of your career kind of gave you that, that focus on really issues that were maybe close to you and as you've moved to the national stage, how maybe your background continues to influence the kind of stories that you report on or maybe how you frame your coverage? Yeah, you know, I attribute a lot of it to some of the first editors I had. So I, I was lucky enough to kind of get a start at um, a KGOU as a reporter. And um, I, I, I think that a lot of the stories that I was asked to pursue um, were stories that were really like kind of um, focused on asking, you know, what's good for the community. And um, and so, yeah, I, th I don't know. I think it kind of shaped, I, I remember some of my early stories were, there was some, uh, a piece of legislation that uh, was going through the Oklahoma um, State Senate to make o English the official language of Oklahoma. And, um, and it would have caused some problems with the Department of Human Services where translation, um, particularly Spanish, um, is like a really necessary part of the job. And so, I remember that story because it was one of the very first ones I ever reported and my editor really encouraged me to, you know, ask, well, what does this mean for the people who go through a place like DHS? Um, what does this mean for um, our federal funding? Does this, you know, raise the um, per, uh, um, chance of, uh, you know, a federal discrimination lawsuit? And, you know, the answer to those questions were all very revealing and, um, yeah, and, and I think just being from a place, you know, to get to the second part of your question, like being from a place that is typically <laughs> referred to um, in, the, in the national context as like, quote unquote, flyover country, I, I think it's like, it was really, it, it's easy to feel overlooked in a place like Oklahoma. And so um, I think you're con con kind of constantly thinking about those things, those communities, um, in, in a broader context and, and what a lot of these decisions mean for them. You know, there's like, there's a lot of things that happen in Oklahoma that I think tell you something about where we are as a country, you know, like our, whether that's our origins and, you know, the theft of native land and forced removal, you know, genocide um, to, um, you know, fast forward to like 19, the 1990s when the Murrah uh, building was bombed 
and how, you know, that was like this really um, critical moment in our understanding of white domestic terrorism in the country. And that's something that's obviously a huge concern right now. Um, so my next question is kind of about, continues with this theme about like the, I guess the future of journalism. Uh, so last June, Wesley Lowry published an enormously influential article in the New York Times that critiqued the past journalistic standards of purported objectivity. And it seems that much of journalism is heading in that direction. Kind of, what are your thoughts on this development in your field and where do you see uh, journalism going in the near future? You mean in terms of that kind of... Um... Like, yeah, just how journalists view their jobs and I guess, you know, how the public thinks in terms of how the public thinks journalists should report. You know, I, I largely agree with, I mean, I, 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 th I think I agree with everything that I've ever, you know, read Wesley write or say. Um, I think his experience at the Washington Post was pretty indicative of, of, of what a lot of journalists of color experience in newsrooms and especially large legacy ones like that that have a long history of failing those audiences. So the Washington Post in particular, um, it, it has a really poor track record on the coverage of indigenous peoples. And that, you know, it, it stretches from its beginning to, 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 to today. Um, and so I, I think, you know, Wesley's departure and everything I've read about it. And, and granted, I don't know Wesley Lowry on a, on a personal level. I've just followed his career, but um, it seems like it, it it's really telling because I think it it kind of like what I was mentioning earlier. Like we need to be asking ourselves if we're part of the problem. And so when you when you as a, a manager, a newsroom manager, or an editor, when you hire a person of color or someone from an underrepresented community because you want to help fix that historic and systemic imbalance, um, you have to also take the next step of listening to that person when they tell you something. So just hiring them and checking a box doesn't accomplish what you want it to accomplish, or at least I don't think it does. Um, you, you, you also have to, you, you hire that person because their expertise gives you some kind of insight that you don't have. And so when that falls on a person of color in a newsroom um, and they're the minority within their newsroom too, and they're not listened to, it, it's a really frustrating position for that person to be in. And then it creates these uh, really toxic and unmanageable, you know, um, dynamics in your newsroom and your, in your leadership and people's ability to trust that leadership. And then that all affects the news coverage. And so I guess all that is to say is that, we can't just focus on changing those inequities in our coverage and fixing them also by just hiring people from those communities. Like we also have to empower them within those newsrooms to make decisions about how news is, is decided, like how news coverage is driven, how hiring practices um, are taken, um, everything, you know, all of those, you know, just having, you know, it's not just a problem of not having, you know, indigenous black uh hispanic you know editors and reporters it's also a problem of not having those people in positions like on the copy desk or um, in your human resources department i mean just at every level of your employment will benefit from diversification and inclusion and so um i think those are really tough conversations for a lot of editors to be having because they are challenging and they're scary and i think that's the point um 
but you know, it's not, they're not easy, but um, yeah, no, I think going forward, if the industry really wants to continue to have this discussion about how to make its, it make itself a more uh, equitable place, um, a more reflective place of the country and the readers, um, then it's going to have to uh, really put resources and time and effort into that. Absolutely. Um, you know, we had so many great journalists at the, at the Athenaeum this past year. Uh, just recently, last semester, we interviewed Carrie Aspinwall on the podcast, and she was fantastic. And uh, I know that you both have written uh, a piece together about Oklahoma and its new relationship with the surrounding indigenous lands. And we asked her this question because not just that article, but so much of your uh, reporting covers topics that are heavy, um, you know, whether it's death or criminal injustice or, you know, sort of the, the erasure of Native American stories. Um, and even it sounds like your experience in the newsroom has been quite difficult. And we wanted to ask you where in the midst of all that you've been able to find hope and a sense of sort of purpose to continue pushing on as you're confronted with, you know, challenges, not just in the workplace, but also um, these really sort of almost tough to listen to stories at times. Yeah, I mean, I, I think you, part of it is that you, you try to work at a place where you know you can be supported because um, especially now in, in this kind of era we're living in, <clears throat> there's a lot of distrust for our industry and it's really easy for people to get in contact with us. And so anyone who's been working as a journalist long enough has a, has a story or two about, um, you know, being uh, berated or harassed by readers. And so, um, and, you know, I don't know why, but we all kind of keep going back to Twitter to get more abuse every single day. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I think, I think it's just important to kind of remind yourself that, that that's always existed. It's just people have an easier way to get in touch with you now. Um, and that, you know, changing people's minds is hard. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, like we were kind of talking about earlier, like equity and race. And, and I think, you know, just to use that as, again, as an example, when you're writing about race, which is something we're all doing a lot right now, um, you're going to get confronted by racists. And, and, and I, I think, you know, it's important to remember that racism isn't just something that's born out of ignorance. It's some, like racism makes racists feel good. And so I guess what I'm saying is that you just kind of have to accept that a part of your job is making people angry because you're challenging their comfort. You're challenging their status quo. And that's kind of what you're supposed to be doing. Um, but at the same time, like, I, I would also just add to that, that <clears throat> this work is thrilling. And um, I, I'm feel super lucky every day that I get to, you know, write for a living and meet interesting people and travel the, I mean, obviously can't travel right now, but travel the country and, you know, really get to be on the ground and see history happen and, and then get to um, be a part of that discussion. You know, if you're doing your work right, you, you are helping further um, the discussion and people's understanding of an important topic. And, um, you know, you don't ever want to become part of the story, but you want to see your work have an impact. And, and um, you know, I, I just remember like when I was at the Oklahoma and, and I was covering the state legislature, if, if something I wrote was on the front page of the paper, it drove discussion at the Capitol the next day um, and so, you know, that, that's a really thrilling experience and it gives you a chance to kind of 
um, take part, I think, in um, your own community in a really, really unique way. And so I actually, I really, I really, really enjoy being a reporter. Um, so kind of switching gears, uh, in your AF talk, you mentioned how German Westerns from the 50s and 60s kind of flipped the script of traditional Westerns on their head by putting indigenous characters at the center of the stories. Um, I'm partially asking this question for myself because I really want to watch those films. Right. Are there any other examples of contemporary storytelling that do a particularly good job of making uh, stories for indigenous people? You know, I mean, I, I think just mainly I would suggest just tribal media and indigenous uh, storytellers because, I mean, there's just this huge plethora of uh, stuff out there to draw from. Um, you know, growing up in rural Oklahoma, I really heavily relied on the public, uh, the PBS station um, in my area, OETA, uh, in my case, um, you know, I grew up, you know, watching like uh, Square One and these other um, really great educational programs uh, on our antenna. And there's a really similar station here in America called FNX, which is the First Nations experience. And it's ba basically public television for made for and by indigenous people. And so, um, you know, like I, I was interviewed once on FNX and I can't tell you like how many people across Indian country I know, like friends and family, you know, texted me or emailed me or called me and said, oh, I saw you on FNX. And so like, and, and in Canada, there's the Aboriginal People's Television Network, APTN, um, which is like FNX on steroids because it's like huge and really well-funded and, and has lots of reporters and, um, there's all sorts of really great indigenous documentary films. Um, Cause you, you know, you'll find all sorts of in, in, in documentary films about things like Standing Rock. Um, but the, the documentaries that really go deep into those indigenous communities are nine, you know, nine times out of 10 made by indigenous people. Um, and uh, you know, and I, and I think it's really interesting how, um, you know, a lot of indigenous academics and scholars today are really um, kind of re like reclaiming the narrative in a really powerful way so like another person that you're bringing to 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 speak soon david troyer who's wrote heartbeat of wounded knee um i think that book is a really great example of how um you know he's he's writing a, a version of history for indigenous people that centers indigenous people and their power and the possibility of their future and not one about indigenous people that's just you know talking about their past glories um and so i, th I think that's like r really key to um how we should be telling stories in indian country definitely um and you know obviously in your role as a board member for the native american journals association you're involved with not just telling those stories but getting um you know people in positions to do that authentically can you share a little bit about sort of your perspective a on what it means to really present those stories in a in an authentic manner and b um you know how the work you're doing in diversity and inclusion sort of plays a role in, in achieving that that goal of representation mm, i think uh i talked a little bit this about this in my speech but i think it's it's just apply it's really simple to me it's just applying the same standard for, of news judgment to indigenous communities that you apply to your own and so um you know, I think um, I think when when you would I think typically a lot of times if you were a reporter 
working at, you know, a newspaper or wherever, and you said to your editor, I want to start an indigenous affairs beat. Uh, if that editor is from a certain age, I would, I would not be as surprised if they think that means, okay, great. We'll have stories about powwows and bead workers and the art market. Um, and, and then, you know, what you really should be thinking is, oh, great. Like, you know, there's, there's, you know, rampant, uh, um, uh, accusations of sexual harassment within the Bureau of Indian Affairs or, um, you know, is, is the spectrum that's running over um, this reservation that the FCC regulates doesn't treat, don't treaty rights mean that the indigenous tribes should have the right to profit off that spectrum instead and control where, who, who has access to it. And so like, I, I, cause, cause those are the kind of questions that help that community get answers and it, and I keep going back to this, but that's writing a, that's writing for indigenous readers and not about them, and um, and so yeah, I think it's 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 really just that simple. Standing Rock is a good example because that story got national attention when the police started becoming violent, when security forces became violent. Um, but that story was ex existed in in court documents and government memos and meetings and. I mean, it, it took a it took a full two years for that story to, or that situation to to build the momentum as it did, um, but you know the press didn't kn know it, and it's I'm not saying that the press just chose to ignore that story on its face. That I think the press didn't know that story existed because they choose to ignore indigenous communities as a general rule, and so. Um, we don't look to those communities enough um, to tell us about um, ourselves and and just to, to, to do good community reporting. Um, and so, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I just think we don't, we, we as reporters enough don't apply that same standard to communities outside of our own. Um, so uh, this next question is perhaps a preview for you, is there any undercover story you're passionate about bringing to light in the near future? Is any what? Sorry, say that again. Uh, is uh, do you have any kind of stories that you think are really undercovered that you're planning to bring to light in the near future? Well, I, I do think that uh, it'll be really interesting to see what um, the Biden administration does uh, in Indian country. I've never seen a uh, you know leading up to inauguration day. I, I've never seen. A, a president or a vice president um, so openly um, express interest in honoring treaty rights and treating tribal nations as equal partners um, in those in, in discussions between sovereign nations. And, um, and, and I think you can see that in the messaging when someone like Pete Buttigieg uh, is doing his stump speech about heading the Department of Transportation, you'll notice he says things like, you know, partnering with local and federal governments and tribal leaders, like just, just that simple act. Like it makes me wonder if that will actually be backed up with some, um, some real urgency. And of course, if, if Deb Holland is confirmed to lead the interior, um, she has her work cut out for her built repairing a lot of relationships with tribal nations and trying to rebuild the Bureau of Indian affairs that, you know, interior secretary Zinke worked really hard to, to consolidate and diminish. And so um, 
I'm re- I'm just really curious to see what this administration does. I think it's easy to say that you want to work with tribal leaders. It's easy to say that you want to honor treaty rights, but it's in practice difficult to do that because the United States government was set up as a colonial settler state. And so to honor those treaty rights and to include tribal leaders at the discussion is to reverse that. And it's, it's baked into the country. And so, um, yeah, I guess I'm just really curious and um, anticipating um, to see what the Biden administration does in Indian country. And, and as things unfold, we'll be really excited to uh, read and listen to what you have to say about it. Um, unfortunately, that is all the time that we have for today. Thank you so much, Graham, for joining us. It's been a pleasure, talk, pleasure talking with you. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. And to all our listeners, remember to stay hungry.